0: If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, we have one that we would love to give you. As you leave this morning, right at our welcome desk, we have a brand new Bible uh, that is yours for the taking. Uh, You won't need it immediately because the verses that I read uh, in our passage this morning will appear on the screen behind me when we get to them. Janine and I went out for dinner on Tuesday night in downtown Huntsville to a restaurant that was kind of a converted, uh, used to be a middle school, and now it's a bunch of restaurants, and and I guess they kind of bill it as an entertainment, adult entertainment center with axe throwing and and a bunch of other stuff, I'm sure, that was there. And we had a great time with this other couple, and we had such a good time that at the end of our dinner, they said, hey, let's go somewhere else for dessert. And so we said, sure, let's do that, and ended up going to uh, BJ's where we got some Pazookis, which is just a, a cookie uh, dessert. And, but when we got to that the guy leaned in and he said, kind of quietly in a, in a whisper, he said, did you notice at the other restaurant there was a couple that stared at us the whole time? And his wife said, yeah, I saw that. They literally turned their chairs around and stared at us through the whole dinner, eavesdropping on us the whole time. I said, I, I didn't see it. I didn't notice it at all. I wasn't aware of it at all, but I did spend the next hour or so trying to figure out, like, what, what could they have been listening for? What exactly uh, was going on? And it did fill me with a bit of paranoia, uh, so much so that if someone just made eye contact with me for just a split second, I was certain that they were up to a nefarious scheme. Um, but you know, we, we, we talked about it, we never did really figure it out. But you know, by the li- some of the lyrics that we sing in Christmas songs. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Or, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Or, Away in a Manger, which has the audacity to suggest that the baby Jesus didn't cry. You know, we sing some of these songs, and we might be inclined to believe that the scene in which Jesus was born, that very scene, was characterized by calm and quiet, and, and perhaps even a serene uh, environment. Uh, but in reality, it was, it was a time of chaos. It was a time of fear. It was a time of paranoia. Uh, not just You didn't just have a teenage girl who was uh, giving birth by way of a natural delivery in the middle of nowhere, which we know uh, couldn't have possibly been a quiet scene, but also in terms of the social and political world it was a time, again, of great upheaval, a time of chaos. And I'm not, I'm not being a Scrooge here. I'm not saying we shouldn't sing those songs. I think we should sing those songs, but we need to keep in mind, um, you know, they, they do give us a bit of a wrong impression. The era in world history between 27 B.C. and 180 A.D. is known as the Pax Romana, Pax, Latin for peace, Romana, uh, Rome, so the peace of Rome. And during that roughly 200-year stretch, the Roman Empire wielded great power and uh, really utter domination. What else happened during that time period? Well, we know it was roughly 4 B.C., maybe 6 B.C., that Jesus was born. Now, why bring that up? Well, if you lived in Rome, when Jesus was born, you were experiencing great and we could even say unparalleled peace. Unless, that is, you were of Jewish descent, if you were a worshiper of the God of Israel, the God Yahweh, if you lived in the southern part of that empire, the area that included Judea, which, of course, included Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem, um, you lived in great fear. It was a time of, of great fear. That province was ruled by King Herod the Great. you probably heard uh, the stories. Um, he was under Caesar Augustus. But Herod the Great had his own agenda. And if you recall the stories, he was egomaniacal, he was paranoid, uh, he was constantly worried about those who would threaten his leadership, and so executions were a regular part of life, really almost a daily occurrence uh, in Rome at that time. And there's no one that Herod hated more than those who were monotheistic, those who worshipped one God. And this was the case for the Jewish people. One historian says, Conditions were like living with spies everywhere you turned. You never knew who might hand you over to be put on trial for something you said or even for something you didn't say. It was a time, again, of incredible paranoia and fear, which is why uh, I, I led with the illustration that I did. Fear was rampant. Paranoia was everywhere. No one who lived in Jerusalem was at peace. And yet, in a glorious announcement from angels on the night that Jesus was born, there is this word that Jesus has come to bring peace on earth. Peace on earth. Now, when we think about peace, there are all kinds of peace, aspects of peace that we long for. We want relational peace, uh, marital peace, Uh, Neighborhood peace—you know, if you live in a neighborhood where there's conflict, you you just want things to be good. Um, You know, global peace, racial peace—we could go on and on—and and and there are all kinds of ways that we would love to experience peace. Um, But the Bible talks about peace in two different ways, essentially: the peace of God, and then peace with God. What I want to do this uh, morning—just going to have one point this morning. I want to—I want to flesh out from the text what this peace with God. It looks like. Why is it so elusive? Why is it so hard for us to find and get? And what does it mean to actually have peace with God? So even though I'm contractually obligated as a Baptist preacher to have three points in a poem, um, just one point today, and it is a briefer sermon, so we're not going to be able to get into it, uh, the text, with, at the, the level of depth that I would like. But uh, let's look together. Uh, we're going to cover verses 8 through 14 of Luke chapter 2, but let me begin by reading verses 1 through 7 just to give us the The broader context. So uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, here reads the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each up to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So in the millennium leading up to Jesus' birth, in the thousand years leading up to Jesus' birth, the living God, who has always existed would reveal to various prophets some of the details regarding the birth of the long-anticipated Messiah. Now, that's one reason among many that we, we believe and we trust that the Bible is the very Word of God, the fulfillment of these prophecies. About 700 years before Jesus was born, God would reveal through the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, conceived by a virgin, and the son would be called Emmanuel. God with us. Now, right about that same time, uh, God would reveal to one of Isaiah's contemporaries, a prophet by the name of Micah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which, as we just read, came to fruition. Um, About 300 years before that, so about a thousand years before uh, Jesus was born, God would tell King David that the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come from his line, which, as I just read, Came to fruition. And all the details in Luke chapter 2, from the census ordered by uh, Caesar Augustus to the trip taken by Joseph and Mary, they're all being orchestrated by a sovereign God for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, to show that God is faithful to his promises, he always does what he says. But even more than that, even beyond that, to show that God was working these things out for a very specific purpose that he revealed way back in the Garden of Eden that He would send one who would restore peace. Now, we learn more about that in the, in the following section. Look at verses 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone ra- around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. you've experienced total darkness. It's kind of hard now with uh, you know, lights everywhere and you have to be in the right sort of surrounding. But uh, when I was a kid, we used to take uh, vacations to see my grandparents who lived in West Virginia. And they lived on this 50-acre uh, farm, as I recall. And, and it was in the back part of it was trees. And I would go out at night sometimes just hiking and sometimes even alone. And sometimes it would get so dark, and you've heard of this and maybe you've experienced this, that you could put your hand in front of your face, you couldn't see it. It was Complete and total blackness. Well, in the region of Bethlehem, which, is a very, which was a very hilly region filled with uh, cliffs and, and a very dangerous topography, there were some shepherds out taking care of their sheep at night. And we don't know if it was pitch black where you couldn't see anything, but we know it was very dark. And then all of a sudden, an angel appears to these shepherds. And this angel is shining as with the glory of God. And of course, the shepherds are terrified. They've never seen anything like this, presumably. And shepherds who were kind of the lowest, on the very low end of the uh, sort of social rung, they weren't used to uh, a visitation from angels, and so they're afraid. But, but to these shepherds, the angel says, don't be afraid. I'm not, it's not bad news that I'm bringing you. It's actually good news. On this very day in Bethlehem, just right over the hill over there, The Savior of the world was born. He is Christ the Lord. Now, you probably heard, know this already, I'm sure, Christ is not Jesus' last name like Williams or Smith or Jones or Brown. It comes from the Greek Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, Mashiach, which means anointed one. Christ means anointed one. Old Testament Israel anticipated a coming deliverer anointed by God to usher in God's rule of righteousness and peace, to, to restore shalom. He would be the Christ, he would be the Savior. And this, this twofold designation of Jesus is all throughout the scriptures Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. Now, there are some people who will receive Jesus and accept Jesus as Savior. They know that they're not perfect. They know they can never save themselves. They fully understand that that there's no way they can be good enough to get to God. And so they recognize Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. His commands are unauthoritative to them. Uh, They don't center their lives around Jesus. uh, They don't live according to His uh, word. They're not trying to obey Him. They live according to their own wisdom and their own insights and their own sort of sense of morality. So they, they, they accept Him as Savior, but not as Lord. They know the gospel. You say, do you know what the gospel is? They can recite it to you very clearly, but they do not live under the submission of the Lordship of Christ. And I love what a friend of mine who's a, he's both an engineer and a pastor in London, his name is Simon, he said this, he said, Jesus did not come reasoning unto acceptance, but proclaiming unto submission. See, Jesus is not someone who gives us, you know, a bunch of advice and, you know, you can, you can pick and choose from it. You can decide what works for you in your life and how it all fits in your world. No, He comes as the Lord of the universe. He is the one under whom we must fall and kneel and obey. And so, again, there are those who, you know, who hey, look, look to Jesus more as sort of a college professor He's just trying to persuade you that what he has to say is is worth listening to and worth believing, or maybe he's a bit like a politician who has his own personal agenda, but he's not Lord to them. Now, I should say, there are some who accept Jesus as Lord, but reject Him as Savior, and what I mean by that is they're really trying to obey Jesus in every area of life. And they want to, and they, they do their very best, and they get up early, and they strive, and they work hard, and they really want to do what Jesus says. But they're not really trusting in Him as their Savior. They believe that if they just try hard enough uh, to do better, if they just uh, stay out of trouble and put off sin and keep you know, growing every day, they'll be fine with God. But they're actually in no better shape than those who reject Jesus as Lord. One of my great joys uh, in life is having a wife who loves the gospel, who loves grace, not just as a theory or as a concept, but as the operating principle that actually colors her life. Well, about 10 years ago, Janine and I were sitting in the living room, it was a Saturday night and she was preparing her Sunday school lesson for the four and five-year-old girls that she taught uh, for, for so many years. I was just sitting on the couch. I had done all my prep, and I was done, so I was just sitting on the couch trying to find something good to watch on TV, and apparently on Saturday, the only thing on is like 19 versions of CSI, and so there was, you know, CSI Miami and New York, and I'm just waiting for CSI Coleman, and, you know, it's, all, it's got a, every city has to have a CSI, but I was looking through and couldn't really find anything to watch, and Janine looked up from her lesson, and she said, I'm really struggling with something. I said, what's going on? She said, the main point of my lesson tomorrow is that Jesus came to live in your hearts. And so that's what the lesson says. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. He came to live in your hearts. She said, I'm just not comfortable. I'm not willing to tell these girls that the purpose for Jesus coming was to live in their hearts. And my heart just bubbled over with joy. I was so grateful. Um, It is a true statement that Jesus lives in those who trust Him by faith. But that's not why Jesus came, to live in us. Jesus came to restore everything that's wrong with this sin-cursed world. Most importantly, the relationship, the severed and broken relationship between fallen humanity and a holy God. We live in a fallen world where sin has corrupted every aspect of creation. Hurricanes uh, rip through towns, and kill people. Earthquakes cause buildings of steel to collapse. Our friends are diagnosed with cancer or illnesses that cannot be remedied by human wisdom. Our friends have accidents. The people that we love uh, die way too soon in our estimation. Work is hard and never fully satisfies. Relationships fall apart every day. Hatred and violence plague our cities. But the worst consequence of sin is that we're actually born sinners. We're, we're born broken people apart from the God who made us. We're born in Adam. So Adam, as our representative in our head, his sin, his rebellion infected and affected us. What we need is a Savior. Not, all the, not self-help books, not uh, all the ways to get better What we need is a Savior. Our unredeemed hearts are desperately wicked. That's before conversion. But even our redeemed hearts are selfish and fickle, running after other loves and running after and worshiping other gods, failing miserably to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, we may keep the rules. We may keep the external rules for a short period of time, but our hearts are inclined to drift to the place of self-reliance. This is the case with every single one of us. As a Cajun pastor, Jean Leroux, who's just down the road in Mississippi, writes, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, you don't know yourself very well. Now you say, well, I know people who've done a lot worse things than I've done, and that's probably true. Of course, there are people who commit worse crimes than you and me, but what he's saying is the more that we grow in our understanding of God's holiness the more clearly we see our own shortcomings and the vast expanse that exists between us and the perfect being who is God and His requirements of us, which is absolute and total obedience. The more we understand about God, the more we grow to despair any goodness of our own that we might cling to. This is why the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his ministry, he'd already planted who knows how many churches. He'd already seen how many people come to Saving Faith. Toward the end of his ministry, in one of his final letters, he wrote, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst. It wasn't because he hadn't grown spiritually. It wasn't because uh, that he, he had done more horrible things than any person who'd ever lived. It was because he un- understood something of God's holiness and his glory and the, and the corruption of the human heart. See, Jesus Christ, his mission was to save sinners. He was ha Christos in the Greek, the anointed one. Jesus is God's chosen one who came to invite sinners to the table, to receive sinners by faith, to forgive those who would repent and believe. He is the friend of sinners. And in saving sinners, He would bring peace. But what kind of peace would Jesus bring? Now look at verses 13 to 14 again. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So all of a sudden, the angel is joined by a host of angels, and the entire sky is lit up like a concert. And to these lowly shepherds, the angels say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom... He is pleased. Now, given the socio-political situation that I just described, surely these shepherds thought that Jesus would bring political peace. He would restore political peace. He would free Israel from the tyranny of Rome. But the peace that Jesus came to bring was actually something different. It was first and foremost peace with God. I mentioned there are two ways that the Bible talks about peace, you know, predominantly the peace of God and peace with God. The peace of God is a wonderful thing. It's it's a beautiful gift. It's that that sense of calm and and rest and relief that you feel, even when the rest of the world may be just spiraling out of control, it seems. There is a sense that even though everything else is wrong, we feel at peace. And it is a gift of God, but it is subjective, And what I mean by that is sometimes we feel it and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel a sense of calm, but at other times we feel stressed and anxious, weighed down and emotionally exhausted. So the peace of God, which is a wonderful thing, is a subjective thing that does fluctuate. But peace with God is actually objective unchanging. It never fluctuates. It describes a settled position that God makes possible by forgiving us, reconciling to us, us to Himself, and uniting us with Christ. The Apostle Paul explains it this way, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does a person find peace with God? It's only by being forgiven of the offenses uh, that we have committed that stand between us and God. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins without which we can never really have peace. So here's our single point this morning, if you're taking notes. Peace with God is not a feeling, it's a fact. It is the permanently settled position of being forgiven by God on account of Christ. Peace with God is the fruit of God's forgiveness. There is no lasting joy in life apart from God's forgiveness in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have fun. It doesn't mean you can't have these great highs. It doesn't mean you can't have moments where just everything's amazing. You think, how could life get any better than this? Yeah, you can have those moments and not be a Christian. But those moments of extreme highs are followed by often devastating lows. Stretches of intense sadness, feelings of loneliness, isolation and guilt. sense of guilt that just will not relent. And I have over my span of pastoral ministry dealt with and counseled and comforted more people who are experiencing guilt and shame Maybe than anything else. In like fact, just this week, met with two people last week. Just, I, I, just, I'm, I just feel so guilty. I cannot get rid of this guilt. If you've ever wronged someone badly and then that person has moved on or you lost track of them or they've just avoided you and you've, you've lost total contact with them, you know that there's a pit in your stomach until you can say, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. If you've ever really hurt someone, and you, you know that, and, and then for whatever reason they've disappeared from your life, and you've been unable to be reconciled, you know that it just weighs on you. Now You might be able to put it out of your mind at times. I'm, I'm sure you can, but, it, but that always rears its ugly head, that feeling of something is just not right and needs to be resolved. Well, imagine the weight. Imagine the agonizing pain. Imagine the guilt. That you experience if you're at odds with God. If you know you've sinned against God, you know you've rebelled against God, you know you've fallen short of God's standard of perfection, but you've not been reconciled to God. That recognition of unforgiven sin dulls every other experience in life. In fact, the 19th century, uh, the turn of the century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, a man must have forgiveness or else everything else, everything will be emptiness to him. Without forgiveness. If, you, if, you, if you're in a relationship where there's unresolved conflict, you know what that feels like. Well, what about unresolved conflict with the God of the universe? Well, here's the good news of great joy that the angels delivered. In Christ, the one come down, God forgives us by absorbing in Himself the destructive and painful consequences of our sin against Him. The baby who was born lived a sinless life for you and me and died a brutal death for our rebellion so that we could once for all be forgiven and finally forgiven and enjoy peace. Yeah, you know, we want to go to the Scriptures. We want to look to Jesus as our perfect example, which certainly He is. But we dare not see Jesus just as our example or as a great moral teacher, or as someone who exuded wisdom. If he was not our substitute, living for us and dying for us, we have no hope for salvation. But if you've turned from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus, you are among those with whom he is pleased, which just means that you are a recipient of God's grace. Then that means that you don't ever have to worry about whether God is for you or against you or where you stand with God, God's pleasure and peace rest upon those who receive God's Son by faith. The peace of God, it's going to fluctuate. And you shouldn't beat yourself up when you have those moments when you don't really feel at peace. It doesn't mean God's mad at you. It doesn't mean you've fallen out of favor with God. Now, there are things that we can do to enhance that peace of God. Earnest, desperate prayer, worship, time with other believers, time in his word, even obedience to Christ's commands helps to foster that peace. But as sinful people on a sin-cursed world, we will not always have peace. And maybe that's your experience this morning. You're here and it's Christmas morning, but you don't really want to go be with your family because you know that there are those who are at odds with each other. You know there's tension. You know there's unresolved conflict, and you're not at peace. Well, again, as sinful people on a sin-cursed world, we will not always have peace. Life on this uneven planet has a way of throwing us curves when we least expect it, which can rock us and, and really rob us of our peace. But our peace with God is never at risk. We are God's sons and daughters through faith, in Jesus Christ and we are therefore at peace with God our relationship with God is secure our eternal position our standing with him is secure even when the waves of pressure and stress and anxiety crash over us and threaten to undo us even when it doesn't feel like it if you are in Christ you are at peace with God that's the good news that the angels interrupted a dark sky to inform the shepherds and good news that led them to worship. Let's pray.